You remember where we're at? <laughs> in Isaiah, silly. Okay. Uh, we're in Isaiah 61, and that, that should be a red-letter chapter, like Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 53. Isaiah 61 should be one of those places that you go, aha, I know what that's about. Uh, when you go through the book of Isaiah, and uh, if, if you're going, hmm, I know 53, but I'm not sure I know 61, uh, by the end of the day, you'll get it, okay? Now, again, let's let's go back to where our psalmist begun, and, and, and remember that the situation of feeling forgotten by God, and, and feeling like God doesn't care, and he's not there, and he's not listening, and uh, and we know that for the Israelites, um, there was an intentionality on God's part, and this this is this is a part of theology that uh, that maybe all of us have to wrestle with. That God actually tells us in the book of Isaiah that He would not listen to their prayers. Now that's shocking, right? This is God, and we go, oh, God's always there. Well, that's true. But remember, we've seen we saw it last week in Isaiah chapter one, and we've seen it sprinkled throughout the book that God says, because of your rebellion and because of your disobedience and because of your idolatry and because of your hypocrisy and your injustice and all the rest, I'm not listening. We say, well, why would a loving God not listen? That's a good question. Why would a loving God not cry out, not listen to you when you cry out to him? And the answer might be that you're living in blatant sin. And God says, I am turning off the audio system of heaven to get your attention. And that gets your attention, right? God says, I'm not listening to you. you, you whoa, I thought he was our God, right? I thought we were his people and... Right? God sometimes does that to get your attention. Now, now listen to me. God will always, always, always hear the prayer of repentance. Right? That, that's what we learn from the Pharisee and the tax collector. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Right? God loves to hear the prayer for repentance. But at least... At times, and we see this in the book of Isaiah, that God, uh, God intentionally says, I'm not listening until that repentance comes, right? So that, that's the situation here. And so as Israel processes that, that, that it seems like God has abandoned them, forgotten them, he's not listening to them, they're asking the question, is this a temporary situation or is this a long-term arrangement? And we'll see that as we get to our text today. So let me pull up the PowerPoint, and then Drew will work his magic so you guys can see it here. So. Okay, PowerPoint coming on. Okay, and there we go. You see it now, Drew? Hey, look at that. Look at that. Okay. So we're in chapter 60 and 61 today. And we're going to call this the anointed one and restored Israel. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 61 together. And, and here we go. Okay, make sure your seatbelts are fastened. Chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, look up for a second. Where have you heard that before? Jesus quotes it, doesn't he? Okay, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Okay, but this is one of the famous quotes that Jesus gives. So really, chapter 61 is all about the work of the anointed one. And if you're paying attention, the anointed one in this chapter is the same person as the servant. And we've seen that, right? Remember, as we turn the, the, the page in, in the 
really the, the partition of the book, right? You got chapters one to 39 in Isaiah, and then you have 40 to 66. And in that transition into chapter 40, we start hearing about this, this mysterious figure called the servant. And, and, uh, we understand that, um, you know, Cyrus is called God's minister and, and the people of Israel are called the servant. But, but as we move along, this, this focus narrows to an individual. And, and we see that this individual called the servant is the one who will come and rescue Israel and restore all things. And, and as we've seen that, we, we get more and more detail. And so again, the term is different. We get another one of his titles here, and that is anointed one. And let's just real quick, do you, are you guys okay with that? Anointed one? You familiar with that? What does anointed one mean? Jude? Okay, it does have to do with someone who's chosen. That's absolutely right. And why, like, do you know what the word anointed means? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because kings were anointed, and it's just what Jude said. We have a young theologian who's just batting a thousand today. I love it. I love it. Uh, when, when someone was selected or chosen for a special task, like a king, they would take oil, and what would they do? Dump it on his head. Now, if someone came up behind you at the fellowship time here and dumped oil on your head, you'd want to clobber them, or you'd, I don't know, something like that, right? You would, but in ancient time, to pour oil on somebody's head like that was a, a special symbolic act that this person special and unique and, and chosen, like, like our young theologian Jude has said, uh, for a specific task, okay? And, and this is, this is related to the title that we hear in the New Testament called Jesus the Christ. Christ. Okay. So look at this. The Spirit of God empowers this anointed one. Now this is unique. You don't read in the Old Testament every day that the Spirit of God comes on somebody. That's for prophets. Right? That's for special spokesmen like Moses and Abraham. That's for, that's for kings like King David. But here we see that this anointed one is given the Spirit of God. And that tells us not only is he chosen for a special task, but God has given him the agency of the Spirit to accomplish that task. And you'll remember in the Old Testament, that's why the Spirit was given. The Holy Spirit was given to certain special people for particular significant tasks. The Holy Spirit was not, listen carefully, the Holy Spirit was not given to all believers in the Old Testament. That's something that doesn't happen until after Jesus comes and ascends and the Spirit is given in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And from that point on, all believers are given the Spirit when they first come to Christ. But we see this is the Spirit of God here empowering him. And notice God anoints him or commissions him for a special series of tasks. Now notice this, and this is where the list will sound familiar to you. And I'll, I'll rattle through them, okay? To bring good news to the afflicted. Now, What's the other word that we sometimes use for good news? It's the gospel, right? So, so this may sound a little bit different. To bring the gospel to the afflicted. To bring the good news to the afflicted. Uh, encouragement and hope to mourners. Did you catch that? He says in verse um, 2, uh, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of, instead of mourning. So again, oil of gladness has that same idea of oil uh, poured on somebody as, as an act, not of choosing, but of celebration. That was another way that oil was used in the ancient day. So there's encouragement and hope to people that are mourning. Freedom and deliverance to captives. Look at verse 1 again. To proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. And, you know, we, we have to stop and ask the question, well, uh, Jesus, or, or well, we'll just call him the anointed one. We know, we know he's Jesus. But the anointed one is going to clean out the jail cells of Palestine, right? That's what's going to happen. That's the good news. What, what, now, what, would you consider that good news if uh, we just cleaned out uh, all the jails and prisons in the world so that bad guys and bad girls would just run through the... Would you be encouraged by that? <laughs> okay, I've got someone saying yes because their hearts are changed and some reference to Northern California uh, politics here. So, yes, yes, we, we have a diversity of opinion here. 
So, so here's the thing. That is not good news unless what Regine said is true. And so maybe the deliverance and the freedom is not the cleaning out of the prisons so much in a physical sense, although in the day that, that people are saved, that certainly will be true. But maybe this is a deliverance to a different kind of bondage. Maybe this is a, a deliverance and freedom from a different kind of slavery. Look at number four. Gladness and praise to the faint-hearted. Look back there. Where are we? In um, in verse three. Oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of <coughs> instead of a spirit of fainting. Okay, so gladness and praise to those that are discouraged. And Nick talked about healthcare workers and and you know they're burned out and they're tired and and here this anointed one comes and says, I come to bring praise and encouragement and gladness to those who are faint hearted. And finally, to bring healing and comfort to the brokenhearted. Look at this. He has sent me verse one to bind up the brokenhearted and uh uh, to pray, proclaim liberty to the captives and, and so on and so forth. And, and notice notice the result in verse 3. So they will be called oaks of righteousness and the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So, so the outcome of all of this is righteousness and, and God's glory. And notice it's not just righteousness, but an oak of righteousness. Have you ever, have you ever run anything into an oak? Have you ever banged your head on an oak? You ever kicked an oak? You ever run your car into an oak? I hope not. Okay, they are not easily moved. So when he talks about an oak of righteousness, what he's saying is, is these, these people will be characterized by righteousness in a permanent and lasting way. It's, it's a strength of righteousness is what he's saying. Notice another one that you, you may have, you may have missed. Look at, um, in verse, where are we here? Verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, meaning it's going to be a good year, and a day of vengeance to our God. And you say, why a day of vengeance? A day of vengeance because what has gone on? Injustice, unrighteousness, rampant idolatry, rampant sin. And remember in the previous chapters, we, we've seen this longing for, for someone to make this right. And, and I don't know if you checked your news app this morning or yesterday. But maybe sometimes you're checking your news app or you're watching it on TV or you're um, going real, real old school. You got a paper newspaper in front of you. And you put it down and you go, when is this going to stop? And what we have right here. As the anointed one comes, I want you to see this. One of the things the anointed one is going to do is bring vengeance. This is what Pastor Terry was talking about a few weeks ago at the end of Romans 12, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So you don't worry about it, right? You don't have to take your own revenge, remember? You don't have to return evil for evil. In fact, I want you to return good for evil. Why is that? Because God is the one to make all bad things in this world right. He is the one who brings vengeance, and he is the one who brings judgment. And we saw that back in chapter 59, that he comes uh, to repay, verse 18 of chapter 59, according to their deeds he will repay, wrath to his adversaries and recompense to his enemies. That's what he comes to do. Now, uh, look uh, look with me, uh, and, and this is the significant part. This anointed one, he's, he's cloaked in mystery, it's Probably the servant. We see that association here. But I want you to see this. I want you to actually turn over to Luke chapter 4 for a moment and, and watch. <laughs> Can you imagine this? Okay. As you're turning to Luke 4, Jesus, as you know, as he's commissioned to begin his ministry, the Spirit leads him to the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil for 40 days. He, you know, he's been, or excuse me, he's, he's been um, fasting for 40 days. And then he goes to the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. He comes out of that, and that's sort of the beginning of his public ministry. And so what he does is he goes back to Galilee. And Galilee is the region in the northern part of Israel, right? And he goes specifically to a town called Nazareth. Now, what's the significance of Nazareth? That's where he was from, right? 
from Nazareth. That's where his parents were from. And he goes into the synagogue. This was his custom. He goes into the synagogue, and um, he, he goes in, and as was the custom in that day, uh, the men would take turns uh, reading, and so he just happens to be selected to read, and uh, the attendant, the overseeing priest or rabbi would have taken a scroll. Now, remember, they don't have a New Testament yet, so it's it's Old Testament scrolls, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And this is what he reads in Luke chapter 4, verse 17. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. So, so this was like he went there, right? He went there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set those who are oppressed, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah 61. Look at verse 20. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he looked out in the crowd and he said these words. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. You don't look wowed. Jesus just said, I'm the anointed one. (laughs) I'm here. Good news. Can you imagine that? And it's an interesting story. Um, They were speaking well of him. They were wondering, and you would be too, right? The deliverer is here. The, The redeemer is here. Yes, finally, someone to kick out the Romans. And you would think that that Jesus would jump all over that, right? Who doesn't love a welcome like that? But Jesus said, and they're saying things like, is this not Joseph's son? Who's this guy, right? And Jesus says, no doubt you will quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we, we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And that's interesting because you'll remember one of the things that was happening was as Jesus was going and preaching and doing miracles, people were wanting to see the miracles. He became like, some people thought he was like this traveling circus show, or show us miracles, show us miracles. So Jesus responds to that, verse 24. Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came all over the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And by the way, a Gentile at that. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but Naaman, who was a... Well, what does it say? A Syrian, which means he's a Gentile. He's not Jewish, right? So here's what Jesus is saying. I'm on to you guys. You're not excited because he's the redeemer. You're excited because you want to see a miracle worker. And your disobedience, your rebellion, your idolatry, your hypocrisy is the same today as it was in Elijah's time, as it was in Elisha's time. And those two prophets, what did they do? They went to Gentiles. They went to non-Jews to minister to them. Now, now part of that is Jesus saying, by the way, I'm here not just to redeem Israel, but to offer salvation to all. But the people sitting in the synagogue that day in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth were deeply offended because they understood that Jesus was accusing them of the same hypocrisy and idolatry of the Israelites of old. So what did they do? And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up and drove him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down off the cliff. And CC, what's that called? Mount Precipice, right? David and Cece know this. They've been there multiple times. This is the mountain, or what they think is the mountain. 
actually, so this is this is a little mountain looking north, and the city you see in the in the background there is modern day Nazareth. Obviously, it didn't look like that in Jesus' day, but that's where it was located. If if, if from this picture now you turn 180 degrees, so that instead of looking to the north to the city, now you're looking south. This is the view you see. It is breathtaking. That's the Jezreel Valley, where there are many many different. Uh, biblical historical things that happen in that valley. You look at the, the mountain off to the left there is Mount Tabor. That's where uh, Barak and Deborah's uh, uh, deliverance happened. And um, there's some other mountains uh, in the distance there. Battles happen down in this valley, and battles that occur in the book of Revelation will happen in this valley as well. But this, you see the rocks there. This is what they think is uh, the, the location where he was um, when they tried to throw him off the side of the cliff. Now, again, can't, can't be sure. Uh, there's no GPS coordinates in our Bible that say, you know, here's, here's the spot. We'll drop, just drop the pin, right? There's where Jesus got thrown off the mountain, or they tried to throw him off. But nonetheless, you see it's, it's quite a drop. Um, at the tree at the top there, and then there's a, little, there's a little, like, shrine area, a little thing in the rock there, and you can see all of that. So, so maybe that was the place. We don't know, but that's the situation. Then, of course, I love this. Uh, look back at Luke chapter thirty or chapter four, verse thirty. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And there are many, many times you can see this in the New Testament where just when you think they're trapping Jesus, it's like boop. he's like Houdini. Now you see him, now you don't, and he's gone. And and so that was not his time, of course, to be captured. But what's the significance of this? The significance of this is that Jesus very clearly identifies himself with the anointed one and thus the servant of Isaiah. And not just identifying with that, but he's, he, he is saying this prophecy we just read in Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in Jesus' day. He came to bring the gospel, Right? to bring good news, to set prisoners free, to give sight to the blind. And all of that was designed to evidence what? That he really true, really, truly was the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, just as he said. Okay, so back to Isaiah 61. Let's go back there and uh, let, let's continue our, uh, our chapter, okay? Um, Okay, so what's the outcome of that, right? He, he comes to accomplish these things, these great feats of deliverance and salvation. And the outcome of all this, when, when all of Israel responds to the work of the anointed one, what's going to happen? Now, this is the condition, right? Um, well, actually, let me give you a footnote before we jump into this. Um, what happened in the synagogue in Nazareth demonstrates... What reality about the anointed one and the people of Israel? That he will not be accepted. This is hard to understand, but Isaiah, when he tells us about the coming anointed one, when he tells us about the coming servant, he envisions it like an overview, right? He comes, he works redemption, and there's this wonderful restoration of Israel, and they live happily ever after. But if we read other prophets, especially the prophet Zechariah, the end of chapter 11, into chapter 12 especially, what we read is that the Messiah comes, the anointed one comes, but he doesn't come once, he comes twice. And that's something that most of the prophets don't reveal. Now, Zechariah does. Zechariah is the one who says that Israel will one day look on him whom they have pierced. And you go, well, why is he pierced? Because the first time the Messiah came, they put him to death. The second time he comes in judgment and deliverance. And that's why they will look on him whom they have pierced. That tells us that the first time that Jesus comes, the Jews will largely do what? They will reject him. And that's what we see that happens in the temple in Nazareth. We see the first wave of that rejection, right? We want the miracles, but we don't necessarily want the message, right? We, we, we want the, the promises of deliverance, but we don't necessarily want to humble ourselves and repent of our sin and follow the Messiah the way that the gospel requires. 
Okay, so Isaiah, you need to get this. Isaiah is going to overlook the first coming, and he's going to now look ahead to the second coming where Jesus comes and restores his people. Okay, so just remember that. So this is the second coming. This is the restoration and the kingdom of Israel. Look at this. Uh, They'll be called oaks of righteousness and priests. We talked about that. Look at verse 4. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. So they're going to come, and what are they going to do? We've seen this in chapter 49. We've seen this in chapter 52. They're going to start rebuilding their city. Now, when Isaiah is writing this to the generation that's in captivity, tell me what Jerusalem looks like. It's worse than your closet or garage. Well, some of you have immaculate garages. So, no, this is, this is a disaster area. It's a war zone because that's what happened, right? Nebuchadnezzar uh, came in and destroyed the whole place, right? And, and he commissioned, he put some of his own Babylonians there and then took a whole bunch of the Jews back to Babylon and the walls are broken down. The temple's been pillaged and broken. It's fire been burned. It's a mess. And so they're going to rebuild. And of course you say, well, yeah, Zerubbabel did that, right? They, they come at, remember, Cyrus makes the decree. The people come out of Babylon. They go back to the land. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. And uh, Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. And we say, yes, that did happen. And then Herod comes later on, and he rebuilds uh, uh, Zerubbabel's temple into this massive, glorious, uh, wonderful temple called King Herod's Temple. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about just the rebuilding that happens Uh, in that time in history. Listen to how we know that. Verse 5. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. And foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. Tell me, when did that happen? Rome controlled that area all the way through 70 AD till past the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So whatever this, listen to me, whatever this rebuilding is, that Isaiah is talking about, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't, it's, it's something that's going to happen in the future because of the description. Look at this. They're served by foreigners, and not just foreigners, they're riches, right? Verse 6, you will eat the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Not just that, they will know everlasting joy and an everlasting covenant. Look at verse 7. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. But therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. And I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. That probably references the new covenant that was just talked about in the previous chapter. The new covenant, of course, you remember, is another, another name for the gospel, right? So that makes sense. The anointed one comes to proclaim the gospel, the good news, and here we understand that's connected to the new covenant that was given uh, in passages like Ezekiel 36. Okay, so they will they will come, and not only that, they will be well known among the nations. Look at this, verse nine: Their offspring will be known among the nations; their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. So here's this vision again. Picture it, okay? Restored Israel. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's funded in part by people bringing wealth from all over the nations. Everybody, every people, every nation wants to come and see this, this blessed, restored city called Jerusalem. And, and they come uh, to see the Jews and to hear from them and to, to hear of the, the unique blessing of God on them. And, and, um, and there's peace in the land. And there's restoration, and there's joy in in the midst of the city. And we go, when has that happened in Israel? Even to this, well, what's going on even to this day in in the land of Israel? There's there's a, a fair amount of peace. And, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily define that as peace. If what was peace in Israel was peace here, we would be freaking out, right? There's there's conflict. There's always been conflict there. And so what Isaiah is saying is there's going to be a day when there's restoration and rebuilding, and it will be glorious. Now, let's look one more time. Isaiah now moves the lens back to where we started in chapter 61, verse 1, to look at the anointed one, what I'm going to call up close. Okay, look at this. 
Look at this. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. We say, who's speaking? The I of verse 10 is the anointed one. He's still talking. The anointed one has been telling us all of this. Okay, so the anointed one says in verse 10, I will, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. So we notice the anointed one has joy in the Lord, doesn't he? He comes, and for the joy set before him, what does he do? Hebrews says he endures the cross, right? He was driven by the joy of the Lord. Notice this also, his salvation and his righteousness. He comes possessing righteousness and possessing salvation. That makes sense. We, we don't see it here, but we know that the anointed one comes to offer his life a ransom for many, right? He comes, as uh, Paul will tell us in 2 Corinthians, so that the one who knew no sin could become sin for us, so that we might become the dead, the righteousness of God in him. Well, here it is. The anointed one comes in righteousness. That's part of his mission. Notice the next part of the verse there, verse 10. As a bridegroom decks himself with garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes things sown and it's to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up, to all the nations. So again, his good news has an effect on all the nations, doesn't it? And the result is that righteousness and praise will spring up, not just in Israel, but in all the nations. Again, pointing to the fact that the good news that this Messiah brings is not just for the, the Jews only, but for all people. Okay, you got that? So, so this is the anointed one. We, we see the Messiah up close and personal. It adds to what we already know about the mission of the servant. But, but there's this special connection with Jesus going to the synagogue in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry and saying, it's here. I'm here. And, uh, man, what, a, what an incredible thing to see things play out. You know, we're starting Advent today. Did you know that? We're starting Advent. I know it's still November. We're starting Advent today. And one of the things we're going to do is we light the candles next door and we go through the, the different candles of Advent. The reason we do that is, is to show you that these prophecies of the Old Testament are clearly fulfilled in Jesus as he comes in the New Testament. And there are many, many prophecies that relate just to his incarnation, just to Christmas. And we're going to talk about those. And, and it's, it's, it's important for, for all of us to see that our faith today, our Christianity today, is not some isolated thing that we came up with. It goes back all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout history, to those prophecies and those prophets and promises that were given literally from Genesis 3 all the way through Malachi. And that our faith in Christ rests on the historic precedent and those prophecies that were given in the Old Testament important to see that okay and notice this this is this is for free this is for free look back at verse eight who's talking well the anointed one right the spirit of the lord is upon me because the lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted that's chapter 61 verse one look at verse eight for i what's the next phrase this anointed one is right God. It's kind of a passing comment. But the anointed one is here identifying himself with Yahweh. Now you say, well, maybe maybe it changed and Isaiah is talking about, you know, speaking for the Lord. There's nothing contextually that we can look to that leads us to believe that someone else is speaking. This is still the anointed one. Okay? The anointed one is God himself. Now, is that consistent with what we've seen in Isaiah? Isaiah has said over and over and over and over and over again, there is no redeemer that you can have except God. Right? That's been one of the themes of the book. So we're not surprised when the anointed one comes and he says, I'm God and I'm here to deliver you. But, now ready? Watch this. Not only is he God, look at verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. And you say, now I'm confused. Is he God or is he not God? 
Is he saying, I am Yahweh, or I am distinguished from Yahweh? I'm distinguished from God. And the answer is, yes. Again, it, it, it's, it's, it's a drive-by Trinity reference. Like, what was that? I don't know. Right? It's a drive-by Trinity reference. But we see here, listen to me, listen to me. The anointed one identifies himself as God, but also distinguishes himself from God. You say, that's confusing. Not if God is one in three persons, it's not confusing. Now, we don't know that because we don't see that doctrine fully developed in the Old Testament, but we do see hints of it as we see here. Okay, so this anointed one is fully God, but is also distinct in some way from God in terms of his person. Okay, does that make sense? Did you catch that when you're reading Isaiah? Interesting, huh? Okay, we got to keep going. Look at chapter 62, verse 1. We're going to call this Zion's glorious future, and, and I just, I'm just going to read this because I'll, I'll, I'll give you an outline in a minute, but I just want you to just let the impact of this picture hit you, okay? Just just imagine what life will be like when this happens, okay? Are you listening? Are you picturing? Here we go. Chapter 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. Now, the anointed one is still speaking, right? He says, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The anointed one says, I will not Stop talking about this until it comes to pass. Verse 2, the nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Now, this is interesting. Um when a young lady gets married, what happens to her name? What happens? Not a trick question. It's changed. It changes, right? Why? It's an identification of her union with her husband, isn't it? It tells you something really special just happened, which we should always recognize when that hap- when a marriage happens. That's something very special. There, there's a union of two people becoming one flesh, right? So when you read in the Bible something happening and the person says, and they called the name of the place or they named the child... Or as it says here, and God gave them a new name, you're supposed to go, right? Something special is about to happen. And just like when a young lady comes to be married and takes on the name of her husband, God is going to change the name of his people, listen, in order to underscore his marriage to his people. Okay, you see that? Look at this. No longer, verse 4, will it be said of you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be called desolate, but you will be called, and here's, here's her new name, my delight is in her. Ladies, just imagine, if I, those of you that are married, if on the day of your wedding, your husband said, um, you know, Palmer's okay, but how about how about this? My delight is in her. That's pretty good, isn't it? So that any time she would sign her name, any time she'd get out of the checkbook, sign her name, sign paperwork, she would be reminded of the delight that her husband has for her. And God says... I'm changing your name, Israel, so that every time you think of yourself, you will remember my delight, God says, in you, Israel, my bride. Isn't that neat? 
So he changes the name here, okay? Let's catch up on the notes here. So who's speaking? Again, it's the anointed one. There's no contextual change that we can identify, so we assume the anointed one is still speaking. He will continue to proclaim Israel's future until it comes to pass, until salvation and righteousness come, and a crown on the hand. Again, what does that do? That, that, that recognizes the special role that Israel, that restored, saved Israel plays in the plan of God in terms of a, an actual kingdom, an actual reign, and, and, and this is what helps us with some eschatology. And I don't know, I don't know if you're raw mill or post mill or pre trib or post trib or mid trib or pre wrath or, and you may have no idea what any of that means. But I don't know what you think about the future. But one of the things that the Book of Isaiah stresses over and over and over again, you have to be blind and deaf to not get this. Looking at Isaiah, okay. There is a future for Israel, and that, that, that future for Israel is a restoration and redemption and, and a kingdom. And yeah, yeah, we can talk about, you know, does that merge with the church? We can talk about that. But, but we have to agree that there is a future for Israel, a king, a reign, a, a restored city, all of this is the point, right? If that wasn't true, then all this hope that God is giving them is irrelevant, isn't it? If that doesn't actually happen. So that's what this is talking about here, a crown on the hand. There's a kingdom, there's a restoration. And I love this. I I gave you the Hebrew names. You can probably find them in the margin of your Bible. Um, Our English Bible translators just went ahead and and translated the names for us. But um, some of these are kind of fun to say. Azuba. It sounds like somewhere in the Bahamas, doesn't it, right? But that's the word for forsaken and desolate, Shema'amah, right? Shema'amah. Um, we, we read those and think, man, th- these, these, were, these were terms that the surrounding nations were using to slander Israel. Your God has forgotten you. Your God has forsaken you, right? They said, Why would they say that? Because they're in Babylon. <laughs> a God who cares, a God who loves, a God who is there, doesn't send you to a foreign nation to be their slaves. A God who loves and cares doesn't wipe out your city and wipe out your temple. and what? Or does he? Maybe... Maybe God loved Israel more than those surrounding nations realized because he was willing to discipline his children so that they might share in his righteousness, right? That's what Hebrews says, right? All, you know, uh, what, what father doesn't discipline his children if he loves them, right? And, and God disciplines his children so that they might share in his righteousness, in his holiness, so anyway, so, so the surrounding nations were saying, Azuba, Shemama, right? Forsaken and desolate. And, 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 and over time, what do we see in the book of Isaiah? The Israelites were coming to think of themselves in the same way. We are forgotten. We are forsaken. We are desolate. God doesn't hear us. He, he's not hearing our prayers. Maybe, maybe he's moved on to another people because we sinned one too many times. And God says, I'm going to change your name. So you will never, ever, ever doubt the faithfulness and the steadfastness of my relationship to you. Isn't that beautiful? I'm going to change your name, Israel, so you will never doubt your relationship with me. And so, uh, here we go, right? Hepzibah. It's, it's hard to say, right? There's an F and a TS in Hebrew. How do you say? How did that sound at home, guys? Does that that come through? Okay, it's okay. So it's it's Hetzibah, and it's transliterated with a Z. It's actually a TS in Hebrew. Hetzibah. My delight is in her. And Baula, meaning simply married. It's it's as it were God puts a ring on the finger. Of Israel and says, Mine. Look back at the text. And your land is called married. The Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man, this is verse 5, marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice 
over you. This goes back a couple of chapters where uh, Isaiah uses the same analogy, right? That, that Israel is like a bride that's forsaken by her husband, but then he returns and he reaffirms his covenant and his union, right? And uh, God will delight in his people, Israel, like a groom over his bride. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to ask... I'm not going to ask the grooms in the room the level of delight that you experienced on your wedding day, but I bet it was pretty good, right? I bet it was one of the happiest days of your life, as it ought to be. And God says in a similar way, his not just momentary delight, but his eternal delight. Remember, eternal covenant is what this all is based on, right? His eternal delight is in his bride. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 6, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. We say, who are the watchmen? And what's up with the walls? <laughs> it's like you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta be able to pivot in and out of these different subject changes here. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen all day and all night. They will never keep silent. Who You who remind the Lord... Take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now, you're not believe this. Okay. Who, who are the watchmen? Take a guess. Who are the watchmen? Okay, leaders, perhaps the prophets in particular. Okay, so next question. What does it mean to remind the Lord? I thought, I thought he was omniscient. I thought he knows everything. Yeah, he does. He does know everything. So if he knows everything, what are you reminding him of? Because it says here, look what it says. All day and all night, they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourself. So apparently, these leaders, these prophets are supposed to be reminding the Lord day and night, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And God knows everything, so why would God want leaders to remind him of something? What is that? What's that? Okay, it might be for, to remind themselves. That might be the purpose of it. It is worship. What are they reminding him of? His promise to do what? Look at this. Look at this. Give him no rest. Give God no rest. You nag him. Nag God until what? He establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So reminding God is another way of describing prayer, right? That's what you're doing, right? You're reminding God of things he already knows. Why would we do that? It is. It's what Katie said. It's to remember his promises. It's to, it's to keep the anticipation and the hope that one day God's going to clean up this world. And he's going to restore all things. And for Israel in particular, he's going to restore their kingdom and restore their city and bring about the, the, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to do that one day. So, so you, know what, you know what the application is here? We ought to pray for this day to come. And this is going to sound weird, but one facet of the healthy Christian life is praying to God, reminding him of things he already knows. Especially the hope of future promises. And I think, I think Alice is right, because we need to be reminded of those things even more than God does. Yes? That's right. Excellent point. You're absolutely right. Thank you for sharing that. Right on. That's right on. It, it's helping us, right? Um, uh, you know, prayer. It, it's been said by uh, one of the one of the uh, Puritans of old is more about aligning our heart with God's, isn't? It? We're not we're not changing His mind so much as we're aligning our heart with His will. Okay. Very good. Okay. So so we we ought to continually. Pray and remind God for this. We, we ought to pray for the restoration of God's people. We ought to do that. We ought to pray for the day. And, and, and you know, um, what, what? okay, let me ask you a question. 
Matthew, let's go, let's whoop, jump, okay? Matthew 6, Lord's Prayer. What did Jesus mean when he said, pray in this way? My kingdom come, my, what's that? It's praying for this. We're praying for that kingdom to come. We're praying for him to restore all things. We're praying him to come and clean up the, the, the mess that we sinful human beings have made of creation. We long for that. Isn't that, isn't that a great thing to do? You know, when you're on your phone and you're looking at the news app, you're going, oh, man, I don't know, throw my phone down. And you're discouraged. Don't do that. Put your phone down and pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, this is so discouraging. I'm encouraged that one day you're going to make it right. Lord, would that happen today? Your kingdom come. That's what remind the Lord means. Look at verse 8. The Lord is sworn by his right hand and by his strong arm. I will never again give you grain as food for your enemies, nor will foreigners drink your new wine from which you have labored. But those who garner it will eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it will eat it in the courts of my sanctuary. What is, what is he saying? God's saying, I'm committing to never allow foreigners and enemies to do what happened to you again. You say, well, wait a minute. You talking about Babylon? Because, uh, you know, Babylon, they came out from Babylon, the Persians, and they restored it. And then who came right in and destroyed Jerusalem a second time? Rome did in 70 AD. Wait, Isaiah, I thought, I thought God's saying he's never going to do that again. No, no, no. He's talking about the future. Isaiah is saying, on the day that God restores Israel and restores the kingdom and the nation is saved, God says, from that moment on, never again will foreigners come and ruin that situation. That will never happen again. There'll be security in the kingdom. Verse 10, go through, go through the gates, clear the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, lift up a standard over the people's. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, lo, your salvation comes. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like Palm Sunday, doesn't it? And there's an allusion here to what we call the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, where Jesus comes in seated on, on a donkey, right? And, and, and the people shout out, uh, uh, Hoshiana, or we, we call it Hosanna, meaning save now, right? Save us now, thinking that... Jesus was restoring the kingdom. And again, remember, Jesus comes the first time to do the work of salvation. He comes a second time to restore the kingdom. Okay, and sometimes people got that confused. But that's the illusion here. And, and let's see if you catch this one. Look at the end of verse 11. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Now, I'll give you a hint because there's a reference in your notes there. Where does that come from? Where do we see that show up? Excuse me. That's in the book of Revelation. So don't, don't, don't go there just yet. I'll show you in a minute, okay? Verse 12, And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought out a city not forsaken. Okay? Now look at Revelation. Just, just hold your place there. We're going to come back to Isaiah for one more moment. But look over at Revelation 22. You said, man, that's pretty much to the end of the Bible, right? Yep, you're right. Last chapter of the Bible. And what do we see here? We see that in the book of Revelation, we see the fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about here, that God, there's this triumphant announcement of the coming servant or anointed one, his salvation. We see an allusion to Palm Sunday, and we see a reference to what John says in Revelation 22, verse 12. The last words of Jesus, okay? Um, the last words of Jesus we see here at the end of the book of Revelation. Behold, I am coming quickly. And what? My reward is with me. There it is. Same language as Isaiah. Again, what does this do? This, this time, look, look at me. This ties the anointed one, the servant, the Messiah with Jesus and his work in Revelation. There, there's, there's no doubt about it that that's, that's who we're talking about here. So that comes uh, as, as John concludes his, 
his letter in the revelation that he received from Jesus. And Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me, right? And that's what Isaiah is talking about when uh, salvation comes to Zion. Behold, his reward is with him and he will and his recompense before him in that day. Now back to Isaiah. Let, let's land the plane here. Isaiah 61, or excuse me, 62, verse 12. Go back to chapter 62, verse 12. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. What, what, what just happened? Let's see if you're paying attention. What just happened? Another name change, which means you should say what? You pay more attention to this than a Black Friday sale, right? This is, this is like, um, they ever have, this is a weird question. Did they ever have Kmart out here? Yeah, did they? The Blue Light Specials. Yes, thank you. I grew up with a Blue Light Special. I don't know if they had Kmart out here. By the time I came out here, Kmarts were long gone. So Blue Light Special, right? More names. Look at this. The holy people. You say, what does that do? The word holy means what? Set apart or unique. This emphasizes Israel's uniqueness, right? Uniqueness amongst all the peoples of the earth. Look at the next word. Redeemed of the Lord. What does that underscore? Freedom, right, from bondage. Right? I mean, they set the captives free. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the jails might literally be cleared out, but we're talking about freedom from slavery, freedom from sin, freedom from the bondage of corruption, that there is redemption in this restored world. And I love this one. Look back at chapter 49 just for a second. I told you this. This is where we start off, right? When you think that God has forgotten you, when you think that God has forsaken you, in chapter 49, verse 14, Israel actually said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. That was, that was the slander of the nations around them. God's forgotten you. Who's this God? He's abandoned you. And so God punctuates. He puts an exclamation point on the end of his chapter and says, let me give you one more name. I'm changing your name to sought out. Not just mine, but sought out, right? God continues to seek his people. He continues to uh, pursue his people, a city specifically that is not forsaken. And of course, that, that title emphasizes the security of the relationship that God and redeemed Israel have together. And of course, as, as we think about the security of salvation to Israel, and we know that, that those salvation blessings spill over into all who would call upon the name of the Lord, this is part of the basis of what we stand upon when we talk about our security, our eternal security in the Lord. That there is a, a faithfulness, there is a security, a stability, um, a uniqueness that um, Jesus, as it says in the New Testament, will never leave us or forsake us. And I don't know about you, but, but in a crazy, broken world, knowing the security of the Anointed One is an incredibly calming and stabilizing force that gives us hope and encouragement. We look at the, the news app, we put it down, we say, Lord, your kingdom's coming. May it come today. And we rest in that. Yes, ma'am. Yep. Mm-hmm. I believe so, yes. Yeah, as far as we know, there's no contextual change. Yeah, so he's still speaking. Okay. Any other questions? It's so good to be back live with you guys. Uh, I, Zoom is great, but uh, this is way better. So, All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for the wonder of these verses, just to see again your promises, the future, the connections that Isaiah gave way, way back centuries before Jesus would come and walk into that synagogue and read from the book of the scroll of Isaiah that these scriptures had been fulfilled. Lord, we thank you not just for the, uh, <clears throat> we thank you not just for, for the assurance that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises, but we thank you for the substance of those promises, that there is a hope and a security, there is a future, that, that even when we feel forsaken and forgotten, that we know you're there and that your promises are true. Lord, uh, 
Jesus said to his disciples, in this world we will have tribulation and trouble, but we take courage because we know he has overcome the world. Lord, remind us of that today and the stability uh, of the gospel and your promises to stabilize us and give us hope in in what are discouraging days. And, And thank you that we can inaugurate and remember again the Advent season where we see the uh, the, the actual implementation of your rescue plan as you dispatch Jesus from heaven, from his high and lofty position with you to the earth to take on humanity, to be born as a baby in Bethlehem and, and to grow up and to live and die and to rise again, to be our substitute and, and to enact these wonderful promises that we've read about today. So uh, it's going to be a great season. And we thank you as we come to it again this day, in Jesus' name.